0: Let's open our Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Last time we were together in this study about six weeks ago, we looked at the end of chapter 5 and into the beginning of chapter 6 and our role as begging ambassadors, begging ambassadors. We don't just tell people about Jesus Christ. We beg them to believe. We implore them. We are to fulfill our role as ambassadors with great passion and with a sense of urgency, as we saw this morning from Brother Bill in the Sunday school class. A sense of urgency. The week before that, our study was titled, I Don't Recognize You. That's when Paul said in chapter 5, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh. Yet now we know Him in this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a what? A new creature. So it's in the context of this new life and this new mission that we've been given that we pick up in chapter six. We're in Second Corinthians chapter six, verse eleven, and we're going to work our way through chapter seven, verse one. And the title of today's study is "Opposites Don't Attract." And of course, you'll see where we get this summary from in the text as we read. So follow along as I read chapter six, verse eleven. Paul says, our mouth has spoken freely to you, O Corinthians, our heart is opened wide. You are not restrained by us, but you are restrained in your own affections. Now in a like exchange, I speak as to children, open wide to us also. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. And do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Chapter 7, verse 1. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. These are the words of the Lord Almighty. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, these are amazing words, amazing truths, and we ask that this morning once again you would open our eyes and give understanding to our hearts that we might honor the word of truth. Lord, we want to know you more because you are worth knowing. We want to know you more because you are worth sharing, and we want to share you well. So in this time, we ask with great expectation that You would do a wonderful work of truth in this place. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we begin our study, let's step back and and consider for a moment the big picture. If you have been a Christian for a while, you have very likely heard the verse, be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. As our text translates it today, do not be bound together together with unbelievers. If you jump ahead to verse 17, you hear Paul echoing the prophet Isaiah in chapter 52, verse 11 when he says, come out from their midst and be separate. Come out from their midst and be separate. Take that thought and drop it into the year 2019, right here in America. Be separate. In a society that has redefined the meaning of inclusivity and tolerance and touted them as two of the highest virtues, verses like this become a lightning rod. Christians are called to be separate. And that is not an easy calling. It is not a popular calling. Matter of fact, we are increasingly seeing that this issue is often making or breaking people's personal identity with Christ. Sometimes the pressure to look like everyone else and to be accepted by everyone else is even pushing Christians to renounce their faith or to at least hide it and nearly pretend like it doesn't even exist. Now, of course, only God knows the heart. But if a follower of Christ seeks to honor and live out this text that we are going to look at today, They are going to experience and respond in one of three ways. Think about this with me. They will either be emboldened in their faith, or they will hide their faith, or they will find that they really had no faith at all. Flight, hide, or fight, you could say. But unlike self-defense, for the believer, only one of these responses is acceptable to God. God hasn't called us to hide and keep our faith to ourselves. On the contrary, we are trumpets of the gospel. We are proclaimers. We are called to be lights on a hill where everyone can see. Secondly, God hasn't called us to fear and flight either. On the contrary, He has called us to put what on? Spiritual armor. How I wish... It was more like a team jersey or a three-piece suit. But no, on the contrary, God has called us to put our spiritual armor on, and He has called us to put all of it on. Ephesians six ten to 14, you know these verses well. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God. Is that so we can pose for pictures? Is it so we can look good? Everyone likes to see a man or a woman in uniform, right? That is not the case here. The verse says, put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. That's where our battle is. And the writer says, Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day. And having done everything to what? Stand firm. Therefore, stand firm. What an incredible text in Ephesians 6. If you and I are going to wave this biblical banner of what we might call holy separation, biblical separation, then we had better understand this concept well and communicate it well and apply it in the ways and with the heart attitudes that the Bible intends for us to use. And again, to say that it is not going to be easy is an understatement. To say that it will be worth it when we stand before God our Savior, that is an absolute truth. So what does it mean to be separate? To come out from their midst? To not be unequally yoked with unbelievers? Let's dive into the text. First, in verses 11 through 13, we find Paul setting his main subject matter aside, and he's interjecting a very personal thought. This is almost like a commercial break, only it's worth our time. Paul is going to very briefly address the two-way street of friendship, the two-way street of the brotherhood and sisterhood in Christ. Verse 11, he says, Our mouth is spoken freely to you, O Corinthians. Our heart is open wide. You are not restrained by us, but you are restrained in your own affections. So now in a like exchange, I speak as to children, open wide to us also. Paul's saying, we have spoken from our heart to you. We have spoken out of deep love for you. And he asks them, return the love and friendship. We are very briefly reminded here that friendship in the body of Christ is a two-way street. Both parties need each other. Isn't it remarkable that Paul, the apostle who met Jesus Christ, who was trained personally by Jesus Christ, think about that, needed the fellowship and the love of the believers in Corinth, an incredible wicked city. We'll talk about that later. This is the way the family of God works. No one stands on a pedestal. No one is immune to the pressures and the temptations and the hurts of life. Your pastors, your Sunday school teachers, your mentors, they need you just like you need them. I have to say how blessed I am as one of the elders in this church, to have a church family that I know loves me in the way Paul is asking for. Someone once said to me, it must be hard being a pastor. Everyone expects you to be perfect. Everyone expects you to do everything, etc. And I, I didn't say anything at the moment, but the thought instantly came to my mind, I don't even know what you're talking about. I mean, first off, my church, my church isn't that dumb. They, they know I'm not Perfect. They know I can't do everything, etc. And the same for Mark and the other, other leadership in the church. But the point here in the text is that Paul poured himself into the church, into the work of God in this community, and he asked them to do the same for him and for those that served alongside him. We all need each other. Now from verse 14 to the end of the chapter, Paul changes gears. Again, as as rapidly as the commercial break came, he steps back into a major topic. And he jumps headfirst into his next major topic in this letter to the church of Corinth. He is going to talk about proper spiritual interaction and relationships with people who refuse to believe in God. He's going to talk about how our worship relates with the world, the system of thoughts, behaviors, behaviors, Individuals that go against Christ and His Word. And in these verses, we're going to see that we find excellent wisdom for what we could call guidance for binding relationships. Paul gives us, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, no less than five points to consider in regards to the most serious, committed, and covenant-type relationships in this life you're taking notes, here's point number one you can write down. He gives us the command. Verse 14, do not be bound together with unbelievers. This mandate, this rule for Christian living has often been misinterpreted, misapplied, abused, misused, often with good intentions. But the understanding and application is still often wrong. And and in a similar fashion, it's often ignored a careful study in context and in wider biblical context is going to shed good light for us this morning on this subject. Let's ask ourselves what does Paul not say in the verses here? Does he say, don't talk with unbelievers? No, of course not. Does he say, don't socialize with unbelievers? No. Does he say, don't be a friend to unbelievers? No does he say don't work alongside them and with them in your community or don't do business with them no he says none of these things none of these these are commands in the new testament the text says do not be bound together with them as some of your bibles accurately translate do not be unequally yoked together don't put an ox and an elephant in the same yoke don't put one animal in that's going this way and another animal that's going this way it will never work. Paul is talking here about binding relationships. Keep that term in mind as we work our way through the text. This is most often applied to marriage, and rightly so, but it is certainly not limited to that. Matter of fact, the context is worship. If you were with us when we studied through 1 Corinthians last year, and we looked at some of the historical and cultural and geographical background of the city of Corinth, then you know that this was a booming city. This was a major thoroughfare. In many ways, it was a melting pot of culture, of business, of entertainment, and religion. There was no shortage of false gods in Corinth. The temples were numerous, and the temples were magnificent. The evil, the prostitution, the wickedness throughout the religious worship was also incredible. It was rampant. And it was from this culture of wicked, false gods and worship that many of the believers in Corinth were saved from. And just like we see in America today, around the world today, the attempt to have the best of both worlds was strong. The mixing of religions, even with Christianity, was popular. This was instantly an issue for the new church. And so Paul says, do not be bound together with unbelievers. In the broadest sense of this context, he is talking about any type of binding relationship that has the authority to contaminate or prevent a believer from following and worshiping and serving Christ. The term unbeliever is referring clearly to people who refuse to acknowledge God. They either follow themselves as their God, whether they would say it that way or not, or they follow other false gods. And the principle behind the command here in 2 Corinthians is obvious. Don't let them control you. Don't give them permission to govern you. In your decisions, in the direction of your life, don't give them opportunity to rule you away from God's rule, especially to worship with them, as though all worship eventually leads to God. Speaking of the yoke, choose carefully who you allow yourself to get locked into, whether by marriage or any other sacred endeavor or relationship. Now, to more fully appreciate and to grasp the severity of the command and the caution in this verse, do not be bound together with unbelievers, one simply needs to reflect back on the Old Testament. At what point did God tell Israel not to be bound together with unbelievers? There were several of them, but first, turn in your Bibles with me to Exodus chapter 34. Exodus 34. Here we find the people of Israel in the wilderness. You could say they were a budding and blossoming nation. God had just recently delivered them from Egypt. We have the whole manna and the meat miracle. We have the Mount Sinai experience and the deliverance of God's ten commands, etc. God's whole law for, for, for Israel as a people and as a nation. We have all the temple instructions followed by what? The golden calf and Moses shattering the two stones that God had just given him. And here, God replaces the tablets at the start of chapter 34. And God has this to say, starting in verse 10. Then God said, Behold, I am going to make a covenant. There's your binding relationship. Before all your people, I will perform miracles which have not been produced in all the earth, nor among any of the nations. And all the people among you who live will see the working of the Lord for it is a fearful thing that I'm going to perform with you. Now here's the command. Be sure to observe what I am commanding you this day. Behold, I'm going to drive out the Amorite before you and the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Watch yourself that you make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land into which you are going. There's the binding relationship again. And here's the reasoning. We're going to look at this later in our text for today as well. Here's the reason. He says, or it will become a snare in your midst. But rather, you are to tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and cut down their ashram. This is obviously a worship issue. Verse 14, for you shall not worship any other God. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, We cannot forget that attribute of God when we study 2 Corinthians 6. Whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. Otherwise you might make a what? Covenant with the inhabitants of the land and they would play the harlot with their gods and sacrifice to their gods and someone might invite you to eat of his sacrifice and you might take some of his daughters for your sons and his daughters might play the harlot with their gods and cause your sons also to play the harlot with their gods. Let me ask, did that happen? Did Israel ever make that very mistake? And did what God warned them of come to pass? Not only did it happen, it happened all the way to the top. The sin affected not only the common people, it affected the wisest and richest man to ever live, their own king, King Solomon. Many of you know the story of Solomon well. Turn forward to 1 Kings chapter 11 with me. 1 Kings 11. And we're going to begin reading in verse 1. First Kings 11, verse 1. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh. Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, you shall not associate with them, nor shall they associate with you, for they will surely turn your heart away after their gods. Solomon held fast to these in love. He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. And what did his wives do? they turned his heart away for when solomon was old his wives turned his heart away after other gods and his heart was not wholly devoted to the lord his god keep in mind as we study second corinthians 6 the issue is whole devotion to god it's not so much relationships it's not so much decisions it's not so much consequences or reasonings. It is an issue of whole devotion to God. It says, as the heart of David, his father had been. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the detestable idol of the Ammonites. Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not follow the Lord fully. It's not an issue of, are we following God? Was Solomon following God? The issue is, Are we, was he, following the Lord wholly, as David his father had done? Then Solomon built a high place for the Chamash, the detestable idol of Moab, on the mountain which is east of Jerusalem, and for Molech, the detestable idol of the sons of Ammon. We're talking about prostitution. We're talking about child sacrifice. Thus also he did for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. Now the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned away from the Lord. The God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods, But he did not observe what the Lord had commanded. So the Lord said to Solomon, Because you have done this and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you. And I will give it to your servant. Nevertheless, I will not do it in your days for the sake of your father David. But I will tear it out of the hand of your son." However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. Talk about living life as though your actions have no bearing, no effect on others. That is one of the greatest lies. What you do is your own business. Okay, sure, to a point but absolutely not in the grand scheme of things. Notice how David's love for God, this this is incredible, notice how David's love for God tempered God's anger and judgment toward David's son Solomon a generation later. Then notice how Solomon's evil disobedience resulted in God ripping the kingdom from Solomon's son, Rehoboam, A generation later. Will your and my actions bring blessing or pain upon those who follow us? Those who are closest to us, etc. Of course, that's a whole other sermon. The point in this text is that Solomon sinned greatly and caused much damage to the entire nation of Israel, not just himself, because of what? What? Unequally yoked relationships. Turn quickly with me to Malachi chapter 2, end of the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 2, and jump forward roughly 500 years. And we come to the prophets. Many of the Hebrew exiles from Babylon have already been freed. The temple has already been rebuilt in Jerusalem by Nehemiah. Malachi chapter 2, verse 10 and 11. Look at what this says Do we not all have one father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously each against his brother so as to profane the covenant of our fathers? Judah has dealt treacherously, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem, for Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves. That's the temple issue at play. And has married the daughter of a foreign god there's your unequal yoke jump forward another 500 years and where do we land we land in corinth with the apostle paul echoing isaiah 52 in chapter 6 verse 17 of our text today come out from their midst and be separate do not touch what is unclean this matter of devotion to god and separation from the world does not change through the course of history It has not changed today. This is a covenant issue. It is a relationship, a binding relationship issue. It is a heart and a worship issue. Now, we would tend to think that these things are obvious. But if the nation of Israel as a whole could be deceived, if the wisest king to ever live could sin so tremendously on this very point, And if hundreds and thousands of years prove people to make the same mistake over and over and over, do you and I find warrant to be most attentive to this truth we're looking at today? Absolutely. Let us not assume that we are wiser or stronger or immune from the temptation we are looking at back to 2 Corinthians, continuing in our text today, we're going to see in the next several phrases that Paul is about to give us point number two in his guidance for binding relationships. Number two, the reasoning. He gives us the reasoning for this explicitly clear and straightforward command. And the fact that he's going to give reason after reason after reason to support this command sheds light on the fact that the danger is just as real today for you and for me and for the church of Corinth as it was for Israel and Solomon. This is actually a problem in modern Christian homes and in 21st century churches. Strikingly, this is an issue that believers genuinely wrestle with. It's a topic in which there is no lack of debate and quote-unquote reasons and excuses for why it is sometimes okay to be bound together with unbelievers, with people who do not know and follow Christ. And Paul is about to hammer on this topic for good reason. So let's look at some of the rhetorical contrast questions that he asks to make his point here. Verse 14 continues. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? The repeated answer to all five of these rhetorical questions is none. There is no partnership between righteousness and lawlessness. Light never fellowships with darkness. It's impossible. There is no harmony at all. It goes right to the top between Christ and Belial. That's the the old, old ancient name for Satan. From the top down, both sides are diametrically opposed. How about this one? There is no common religious ground. There is no common God truth between people who believe in God and people who refuse to do so. You'll come back to that point. Finally, God's temple has no agreement with idols. Obviously. And all of these points are polar opposites, as we see. They're total contrasts. They are what we would call complete contradictions that stand in fierce opposition to each other. Here's the summary of them they are so dissimilar that there are no grounds for binding relationships with believers and unbelievers. They are, in the truest sense, a totally unequal yoke. They don't fit. They will never fit. It's impossible for them to work together toward God. Point number three, here is the reality. The reality, verse 16 continues, for we are the temple of the living God. That spiritual reality changes everything. People who see no problem with being bound together with unbelievers because they love them or like them or have what they call common interests, etc. People who see no problem with this, no problem with covenant relationships with, with people who fail to see themselves as temples of the living God, people allow this because they themselves do not see themselves as temples of the living God. This is a powerhouse truth for Christians. This is a game changer. And failure to recognize this vital reality will warp our thinking. It will will excuse our unbiblical decision-making process. It will swing the door wide open to rationalize why I am free to do what I want with who I want. On the other hand, a strong recognition that we are the temple of the living God will yield a tremendous amount of discernment, guidance, and humble boldness for Christ and in Christ. If you remember nothing else today, perhaps you and I should remember that it is most beneficial to recognize that we are the temple of the living God. Again, that changes everything. In Paul's letter to, his first letter to the church of Corinth, he said in 1 Corinthians 3, 16 to 18, do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him for the temple of God is holy and that is what you are. Let no man deceive himself. First Corinthians three, sixteen to eighteen. Jump ahead in that same book to chapter six, verse eighteen to twenty. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Paul asked the question twice there. Do you not know? In modern terms, how could you miss this? This is so obvious. This is huge. You and I are the temple of the living God. He dwells in us. And what we do with our body and what we do with our life matters because this is a God issue. It is a relationship, a binding relationship issue. It's a heart and a worship issue It is a God-present-in-us issue. Now clearly, the application is that a believer should not marry an unbeliever. That is the highest covenant relationship possible between a man and a woman. Specifically, the relationship that is by design to represent Christ and the church. This is a spiritual relationship. Young people, you do well to not reason your way around this command Scripture. Don't be a Solomon. It cost him and his son and his children's children and the whole nation for the sake of your family and your future spouse and your children and your children's children. Marry a person who loves God with their whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. Is God asking too much of you and me? Now let me quickly add what Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 says was quick to add. He said, if you are a believer who finds yourself married to someone who does not follow Christ, does not believe, God does not call you to separate. I love this passage. 1 Corinthians 7. The grace and the mercy of God will be greater in your home. If you look at the text in a way that God only knows, He says both peace and holiness will still be in your home. What a promise. What a hope that God gives us in His Word. And Paul says in verse 16 of that chapter, who knows, maybe God will use you and your testimony and the difference Christ has made in your life to lead your, your, your spouse to salvation. How awesome would that be? Pray toward that end. And off on that subject for today, we worked through that text in May of last year, if you'd like to watch our study of 1 Corinthians 7 on our live stream. But back to our text today, Paul continues to teach us about the importance of godly relationships with point number four, the incentive. Look at what the text says next, and I really want us to dial in here. This is the focus. This is the joy of why we choose our relationships so carefully. This is the blessing. This is the grand prize. Paul continues in verse 16. Just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Christian friend, can you just feel your heart swelling with pride and gratitude and wonder and worship as you hear those words and know that those promises have been applied to you? That's my dad. That's my spiritual heavenly father. He saved me. We see here that the issue is, is not just of what we separate from, that is ungodly relationships. We refuse to commit and covenant ourselves to them. But we see here who we separate ourselves to. We don't choose this because we are choosing this. And Paul is pulling from a number of Old Testament texts here, both in the Torah and in the prophets, to show God's heart, God's desire, God's longing, and His loving offer to have a deep and lasting and wonderful relationship with all who will love and follow Him. This is more than just religion, friends. This whole Bible and God thing is more than just a moral code to live by. So much more. We are talking about a personal and a meaningful and a perfect relationship with the one and only Almighty God who made us and loves us. That is the message of the Bible. God loves you. And He is glorified by His love for you. We're talking about a personal relationship with God. This is what being a Christian is all about. And look at this crescendoing progression of truth. Starting in verse 16, God said, I will dwell in them. There is the truth doctrine that God in His Holy Spirit dwells in believers. There is no longer a temple or a tabernacle to go to, to worship him, to find him, etc. If you are a follower of Christ, you are God's temple. He has made it so. And the Holy Spirit dwells within you and me. But the verse goes on to say, and walk among them. I remember, every phrase in scripture is there for a reason, a valuable reason. God not only lives in us, he walks with us. He does life with us. He journeys by our side. He's active with us. In studying this passage with my family, I'll let you on a little secret. Most of these sermons go through family devotions. I love it. I learned so much from my family, seriously. We see here, and we notice in our family devotions, that we liken this truth to living in our neighborhood. There are neighbors who live in our hood. But most of them don't do life with us. They don't walk with us. They're not companions on this journey of life. God says, I not only live in you, I walk with you. Be grateful that phrase is in there. But he doesn't stop there. He goes even deeper. He goes even more meaningful when he says, And I will be their God. You see, we've got neighbors who do life with us, but they're not our God. They aren't our creator, our protector, our provider our guide, our king, our friend, our savior. They're none of those things, but God is. But God doesn't stop there. He says next, and they shall be my people. Stop and ponder God loving you and me so much that he chooses to take personal ownership of us, to redeem us with the shed blood of his own son, Jesus Christ. Not only do we have the privilege of claiming God as our God he claims us as his people ponder this what if there were people who sincerely wanted to follow God but he refused to claim them in return he denied them for whatever reason he rejected them that could have been our fate but no what does the text say God welcomes us Those are such incredible words Like that father in the parable of the prodigal son, our heavenly father, he waits and he waits eagerly. He watched daily for the son's return. What happened in that parable? When the son returned, the father ran to him and wrapped his arms around him and celebrated his return. That's God for you and me. Let that sink in. Savor your relationship with your savior. But God doesn't stop there. He doesn't just dwell in us and do life with us and be our God and make us His people and welcome us into this relationship. He goes even deeper, verse 18. And I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me. He's not only our God, He's our Father. This seems almost too good to be true, doesn't it? Does the wonder of what we're reading still overwhelm you and me when we read it? God just went from sovereign of the universe to head of my home. Think about that. He just went from the one who reigns over all the galaxies to the one who holds me in his arms and cherishes me as his child. And who is it that declares these things to be true? The Lord Almighty, the one and only ruler who has the power to accomplish these things. We've all seen people promise things they could never fulfill, not God. There is no other being in all the universe, in all of history, who has the authority and the strength to do what God just promised in these verses. What incredible love that the Lord Almighty wants to be with you and me, and He welcomes into this, us into this relationship that, is, that infinitely supersedes all other human relationships. My relationship with my my wife is wonderful, it's amazing, but it's nothing like this. My wife and I are just two fragile, finite human beings agreeing to love each other till death do us part. But this is God all-powerful, reaching down and living in us and walking with us and being our God and claiming us as his people, even not just as his people, but as his children, Think about that. It's one thing to be the subject in the nation of a great king, but it's a whole other thing to be one of the king's children, one of the king's kids. The two aren't even comparable. Point number five. Here's where the point of this text hits home. With great privilege and great blessing comes great responsibility. Point number five. The responsibility. Look at chapter 6, verse 17. It says, Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean. Chapter 7, verse 1 Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. This, these responsibilities that we are given are tied back to the command in verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Do not be bound together. Come out from their midst. Be separate. Don't touch what is unclean, what is evil, what is in unbelief and defiance of God. Their worship is nothing like our worship of God. Don't go there. Don't mix the two. And he says, Cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit and perfect holiness in the fear of God. That's our responsibility. We're reminded of the biblical principle that we are in this world, but we are not to be of this world. In Jesus' intercessory prayer, this is his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, in verses 14 to 19, Jesus said, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you, this is Jesus praying to the Father, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. How do we cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit? Go to the word. Obey the word. Learn from the word. Honor the word. Verse 18, Jesus said, as you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. Make no mistake. Christ has not called us to be isolationists. Quite the contrary, he has dropped us into the middle of our communities. Be separate does not mean leave town. Quite the opposite. Verse 19, for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. We are in the world, but sanctified, what does sanctify mean? Set apart, set apart specifically for holy purposes. The Old Testament temple utensils were sanctified. They were set apart and used only for worship. They were only used in the temple, for temple service. The priest didn't dig in the side yard with them one day and then turn around the next and use them to prepare offerings. Likewise, we, although we are in this world, we are not of the world. We are set apart by God for temple service, for kingdom purposes in this world. And because this is true, because we are the temple, we are obligated, we are commanded to cleanse ourselves. That's quite a thought. This speaks of the daily personal responsibility to pursue holy and God-honoring living. Now to be certain, to be clear, we are not cleansing ourselves of the penalty of sin. No one in this room has the power to do that. Only Christ could do that, and he did that at the cross. He paid the price when he died for our sins. He conquered death when he rose again. And we are forgiven in Christ and through Christ when we repent of sin and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 to 10 says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart, Not just with the mind. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. A promise is made. You will be saved, the text says. For with the heart, a person believes, resulting in righteousness. That's the forgiveness, the total forgiveness of sin. And with the mouth, he confesses, resulting in salvation. Salvation from death. Salvation to life eternally with the God who made us and loves us. So seeing that we who have done that are forgiven, seeing that God is our Father and we are His children and we are His temple, that compels us to go and sin no more, to change the way we live, to correct our choices and our desires by the mercies and grace of God. As we open the Word of God in the fear of God alone and let that Word wash us obediently wash over us we are then able to perfect holiness that word perfect doesn't mean the perfect that we typically use it as it means it's a maturing process it's an improving process we grow and we mature in what Christ has called us to and the importance of the word of God as our chief standard for holiness cannot be overstated There is no end to what every individual person might determine to be defiling and not defiling. Sanctifying and not sanctifying. Equal and unequal. Things haven't changed since the Old Testament times where the Scripture says that every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Everyone became a law to themselves. No society can function that way. The only way that we can truly avoid unequal binding relationships that would pull us from God. The only way we can cleanse ourselves from all defilement of both the body and spirit is when we stand in the fear of God and in the submissive fear and honor of His most holy Word. That's what it means to be a Christian, a follower of Christ. Remove the authoritative and inerrant word of God from the equation and you have all the false religions of the world. It is not common sense. Excuse me. Is it not common sense to recognize that only the creator can tell the creator what is true and right and holy? Even such common sense, though, takes divine understanding. That's why we need God. We need Him to open our eyes and reveal to us in His Word what our little minds could never figure out on their own. And God promises He will do just that. As we wrap up, friend, if you heard those promises in Romans, I'm sorry, in verses 14 to 18 here, these promises about God living in us, and doing life with us, and being our God, and us being his people, and not only that, but him being our father, and us his children. If you hear those promises and think to yourself, I'd like to know more about that. I'd like to have that kind of relationship with God, if that's possible. Friend, the good news is that it's free, and it's yours for the taking today. You heard me read Romans chapter 10 earlier, verses 9 and 10. It says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation, what more could we ask for than forgiveness of sin and the assurance of eternal life, a sweet relationship with the God who made us, etc., If you'd like to know more about this would you please just come up afterward and chat with me or chat with pastor mark or anyone here we will open the scriptures and show you what the scripture says not our opinion show you what the scripture says about sin and guilt and about forgiveness and freedom and peace and joy and the assurance of eternal life the bible speaks to all of this Don't hesitate to reach out to me or somebody else here. None of us knows when our last day on this earth will be. And for those of us who already know God as our Heavenly Father, will you join me in taking a good, hard, honest look at the relationships in our life? And Will we hold them up to nothing less than God's command to not be bound together with unbelievers? Don't grant even one relationship the authority and the opportunity to pull you away from Christ and from His Word and His worship and His will for your life. Why would we choose that when God says, come out from their midst and be separate and do not touch what is unclean and I will welcome you? Who would choose the old rotting wood when they could have solid gold? Life is too short and eternity is too long to run from God. Let us choose and cherish and honor the relationship that He has so freely given us. That will guide all other relationships. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we sit here for just a few minutes this morning, pondering the fact that the God of the universe wants to be with us, loves us, wants to save us and protect us, provide for us, and guide us through this life into an eternal home with Him. Lord, as we ponder this, it is overwhelming, and it just drives us to worship You. This morning, Lord, we worship You. You are the one true God. And in faith, by grace alone, we follow you, Lord. We choose you. Lord, if there is one here today who doesn't know what it means to be a child of God, to have a relationship with God, their Savior, I pray that they would come, open your word, speak with someone here, and learn more about the greatest question that can be ever asked, and that is, what will you do after you die? What will happen to you after you die? Scripture warns us, Lord, that this life is but a vapor. It is so brief. And on the other side of this life lies eternity. Lord, give us the wisdom we need to live accordingly. Lord, help us not to forget. Help us to intentionally keep it before our eyes that we are the temple of the living God. You deserve our reverence. You deserve our honor our submission, our obedience. You deserve our love. By your grace, we purpose to love you more in Jesus' name. Amen.